As I said, we started a series a couple of weeks ago on uh, our authority in Christ. We've been using as a text scripture Luke chapter 10 and verse 19. Jesus, the the context of this uh, setting or this scripture is that Jesus has commissioned his disciples earlier in the chapter. He told them to go out two by two and to preach the gospel. He told them to heal the sick. He told them to tell them the kingdom of God has come nigh unto them, which means healing must have something to do with the kingdom of God. Then Jesus, by the way, in, uh, along that line, Jesus taught them to pray, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Well, if healing has something to do with the kingdom of God and he's prayed for the kingdom of God to come, then he must be praying for healing. Part of the Lord's prayer includes healing. Thank you for your enthusiastic response. No, it's absolutely true, folks. If you want to know the will of God, look at how things are going to be in heaven. Is there any sickness in heaven? Not a bit. Jesus taught his disciples to pray, thy will be done, thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. So Jesus commissioned his disciples to go out and heal the sick just like he was doing. They came back. We'll start reading in verse 17. It says, in the 70 returned again with joy saying, Lord, even the devils are subject unto us through thy name. Now, the context about that is Jesus didn't say one word about casting the devil out of anybody. He didn't say one thing about taking authority over the devil. He didn't, that wasn't one part, not even hinted or alluded to in the things that he commissioned his disciples or the 70 in this case to go do. But they found out that the power of the name of Jesus was greater than even devils. That was a big thing to them. I'm, you know, it's, it's kind of hard to think of that in a modern day setting because of the different way and the different attitude the church has. But apparently their idea was, yeah, okay, well, we can accept that the name of Jesus is greater than sickness. But then when they found out that it was greater than the devil, that was a big deal to them. So they said, Lord, even the devils are subject to us through thy name. And Jesus said unto them, verse 18, I beheld Satan as lightning fall from heaven. Now he's not saying when you use my name, Satan fell. He's talking about things that he witnessed at the right hand of God before the creation of the earth. When Satan took a third of the angels and rebelled against God. And there was a great war in heaven. People get the, the wrong idea about that great war in heaven. They think that it was a, just a deadly struggle between God and the devil. And somehow, just barely, God prevailed. Must have been because he had more of the angels. Folks, that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says Satan was cast into the earth. Satan rose up in rebellion. God slapped him down like lightning. See, don't allow yourself to think that God and the devil are equal powers in your life. They're not. The devil's power cannot be compared to the things that God has provided for us. That's what Jesus is saying. He said, I beheld Satan fall as lightning. Don't you know that was a proud day for him? The devil. He talked a third of the angels into going against God, rebelling against God. I'll exalt my throne above God's and you'll be with me. Didn't work out too well, did it? God cast him out of heaven and he fell to the earth as lightning. You ever seen lightning streak? We don't have many thunderstorms around here, but if you're from a part of the country that has lightning and thunderstorms, lightning moves pretty fast. And boy, when it touches down, everybody knows it. I mean, it shakes everything. That's what Jesus uses as an example. He said, I beheld Satan fall as lightning from heaven. Behold, I give unto you power. Now, the word power is translated or used twice in the King James in verse 19, but they're two different Greek words. The first word translated power is delegated power or authority. The second word translated power is ability. So he says, behold, I give unto you authority 
to tread on serpents and scorpions. Now, what does that mean? Well, those are examples or types of the devil's power. How do we know? Because Jesus just tells us in the next phrase. He says, and over all. So that must mean serpents and scorpions are a type of or an example of his power. But then he goes further and he says, not just over serpents and scorpions, but over all the power of the enemy. And nothing shall by any means hurt you. Please notice the by any means. I, honestly, I think one of the most important parts of the verse is by any means. Because the devil will always try to tell you this way is going to get you. He'll always try to bring some kind of information to you, some kind of knowledge, some kind of threat against you. That this way that he's going, this thing that he's now doing, that's going to be the thing that takes you under. Yeah, maybe, maybe it won't be sickness, but it'll be this. Or maybe it won't be that, but it'll be something else. Jesus said, I give you authority over all the power of the enemy and nothing shall by any means hurt you. Now, folks, there's two ways you can look at this verse of Scripture. You can look at it, number one, as if Jesus is giving to his disciples power that nobody else can have, or, number two, that he's giving to mankind authority over the power of the devil. Those are the only two options. Which one is it? Well, I would submit to you, first and foremost, that these are not the 12. This is the 70. I would submit to you also that in Acts chapter 3, why don't you turn with me over to Acts chapter 3. I can tell this is going to be a little different this morning. I'm already off track. In Acts chapter 3, it tells us about how the disciples, Peter and John specifically, used this power to overcome sickness. There was a man at the beautiful gate of the temple. He's begging for money. Peter and John went to the temple at the hour of prayer. They had a time to pray, which is a good example to set in your own life. That always goes over big. It was the time... Well, let's just start reading verse 1. Now, Peter and John went up together into the temple at the hour of prayer, being the ninth hour. And a certain man, lame from his mother's womb, was carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple, which is called beautiful, to ask alms, that means money, of them that entered into the temple, who, seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, asked an alms. They asked money from them too. And Peter, fastening his eyes upon him with John, said, Look on us. And he gave heed unto them, expecting to receive something of them. Then Peter said, Silver and gold have I none, but such as I have give I thee. Now, folks, Peter is not saying, we're disciples, we're servants of God, we don't own money. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, we didn't bring any money with us. But I've got something that's more important than money. Such as I have give I thee. Please note that that is the one rule of, of, of walking in fellowship with God. You can't give what you don't have. They knew they had something. What if they hadn't known they had anything? You know why most of the church is not doing the works of Jesus? Because they don't know they have anything. And the law always applies. Such as I have, give I thee. You can only give what you know you have. That's why it's so important to know who you are in Christ. That's why it's so important to know what the power of the name of Jesus really is and what it will do. So he said, silver and gold have I none, but such as I have, give I thee. In the name of Jesus. What do you got, Peter? The name of Jesus. In the name of Jesus, Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and lifted him up. And immediately his feet and ankle bones received strength. And he, the the crippled man, formerly crippled man, leaping up, stood and walked and entered with them into the temple, walking and leaping and praising God. Notice he praised God when he was healed. He's not sitting there on the ground asking for money, praising God. So much of the church world has the idea 
that God brings these things into your life so that you can learn something. Well, notice that nobody's glorifying God in their sickness. You look in the, the four Gospels, look at all the people that were healed in Jesus' ministry. You can't find anybody that's glorifying God while they're sick, but you can find a lot of them that glorify God when they get healed. Healing brings God glory, not the sickness. So he goes into the temple walking, walking and leaping and praising God. And they that knew that it was he which sat for alms at the beautiful gate of the temple. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what at which had happened, at that which had happened unto him. And as the lame man which was healed held Peter and John, all the people ran together unto them in the porch that is called Solomon's, greatly wondering. Well, if they're wondering, that means they don't know what happened. Signs and wonders are things that make you wonder. They're wondering. Nobody has an explanation for this. The religious people haven't showed up yet. They'll try to explain it away in just a minute. And when Peter saw it, he answered unto the people, You men of Israel, why marvel you at this? In other words, what are you wondering at? Why marvel you at this? Or why look you so earnestly on us as though by our own power or holiness we had made this man to walk? Now, folks, can, can I just talk real person to person with you? If the apostles, this is after Jesus is raised from the dead, if the apostles had special power, so much of the church world has the idea that the 12 apostles had power to heal to prove that Jesus was raised from the dead, but when the last apostle died, all that power was done away with. If that's the case, let's just consider that for a moment. If that was the case, wouldn't they know it? If the 12 had some special place, some special power, some special something, that enabled them to do what you and I cannot do. And that's the way so many people explain away scriptures like Luke ten nineteen. They'll say, well, that was just for the apostles. Okay, well, if that was just for the apostles, shouldn't the apostles know it? Wouldn't they be misleading? And wouldn't Jesus be a, a partner to them misleading the church for them to tell the church that you can do the same things we're doing? Wouldn't it be important for them to know that they and only they have this power and it was for a specific reason and that is to prove that Jesus is raised from the dead? Wouldn't that be a necessary component? I mean, otherwise, if I'm Peter and I'm thinking, hey, this belongs to everybody and it doesn't and I go preaching that it belongs to everybody, then God's going to hold me responsible for preaching the wrong thing. But if he didn't tell me that it doesn't belong to everybody, that it only belongs to me because I'm special, then I'm responsible for doing what he's told me and revealing the information that he's given to me, right? Do you see my point? Now, this is a real important point to me because I know I'm responsible for speaking the truth. I'm not responsible for saying what I think. I'm, I, I will be held responsible for that. That's why I know that I can only stand before God and say, I did what you told me to do when I say what he said. Why would it be any different for Peter and the other, the other apostles? Are you with me on this? Nod at me or something. You're giving me that cow at a new gate look. Do you understand what I'm trying to say? Whether you agree with it or not, do you understand my point? All right. Notice what Peter then says with that understanding. Notice what Peter says in verse 12. He says, why look you so earnestly on us? As though by our own power or our, or our own holiness, we had made this man to walk. 
In other words, the two things that Peter can identify very specifically and very clearly that it was not was special power that they had or a special holiness that they walked in. Yet isn't that the very thing that the modern day church says is the reason why they did it? Well, the apostles had special power. Oh, they were the, they were the chosen ones. They were the special apostles of the Lamb. They had a special place with God. They had a special power with God. They did things that the modern day church shouldn't be able to do. Yet that's the very thing that Peter says, it ain't it. I know that's bad English, but you get my point. What does he say did it then? He says, verse 13, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob, the God of our Lord Jesus, uh, God of our fathers, has glorified his son Jesus. Please notice that healing glorifies Jesus. Not sickness. Healing glorifies Jesus. Whom you delivered up and denied him in the presence of Pilate when he was determined to let him go. But you denied the Holy One and the just and desired a murderer to be granted unto you. This seems to be payback time during his preaching. You remember you did all this stuff. And Peter nails them on it. Then he goes further and says, And has killed the prince of life whom God has raised from the dead whereof we are witnesses. And in spite of all those things. You want to know why we did it or how we were able to do it? And his name through faith in his name has made this man strong whom you see and know, yea, the faith which is by him has given him this perfect soundness in the presence of you all. Why didn't the church do the same things that Jesus did? Because there's no faith in his name. Notice it's not just the name but faith in his name that does the work. That's why it's so important to know who we are and what authority we've been given. Because what you don't know will not do you any good. We've used the example before. I know you've had the same experience that I have that sometimes maybe in, in, in winter or something you're wearing a coat or you're wearing clothes that you don't usually wear and you'll have extra money from something that you've done, uh, change from going to the store or whatever and you'll stick it in the pocket and not think about it. Well, you'll find that six months later and think, whoa, there's that money. And you may remember when you put it in there. You may not remember when you put it in there. But all of a sudden you find it and you think, great, this is terrific. Well, folks, that money was yours when you didn't know that it was in the pocket just as much as when you found it. But if you don't know that it's yours, if you don't know where it is, you certainly can't use it. It's amazing to me how so many people think that spiritual things just fall on you. If God wants something to happen, it's just going to happen. It's not the way it works out in life in other areas. It's not the way salvation works out. Salvation came to you when you chose to accept Jesus. So as I said, back to Luke chapter 10, there's only two possibilities. One is that the apostles had special power. Well, two things we've already mentioned. Number one, this was the 70, not the 12, that he said had authority. And number two, the apostles say themselves they didn't have special power. Then the only other possibility is that this power belongs to the church. This authority over all the devil's power belongs to the church. Now, we've talked about authority in a couple of different angles, from a couple of different angles, and we'll go much further. But we've been, uh, the last couple of weeks, we've been dealing with some things, overcoming some objections to the idea of authority. Two weeks ago, I think it was, we talked about the sovereignty of God. Last week, we talked about predestination. We looked at some of the objections and some of the, the arguments that the church, the church world, not, uh, not everybody in the church, but a, a, a significant portion of the church raises against the idea that man has authority. And they say, well, God's in control. God's running things. Folks, I would submit to you, if God's running everything in the world, he's got the world in a mess. 
If God's running things in the world, then that means he's inspiring people to fight against him. Now, I'm just common sense enough to say that if that's the way God works, he's schizophrenic. I don't know about you, but I wouldn't want to follow somebody that's schizophrenic. We talked about predestination. Predestination in the church world so often carries the idea that God's the one that's causing things to happen. You can't get that from the meaning of the word predestination. Predestination just simply means pre-planned or pre-designed. It doesn't mean to cause. It would be the same as if we use this example. God has pre-planned a redemption party. He's invited everybody. Who comes is up to them. There's all kinds of benefits if you come. If you come, you're called the elect and you're called the chosen. But it's still your choice. He may know ahead of time who's coming and who's not going to come. Just like you know sometimes when you invite a bunch of people to your house, you know, well, these people are going to come. They always come. They're our good friends. They're close to us. And you may think these others may come. We'll just have to see what they decide. God has foreknowledge and he sees everything. He sees the future just as well as we see the past. So he knows everybody's going to come who everybody's going to refuse. He knows, but that doesn't mean he's causing it. We know the events that happened on 9-11 when our country was attacked. We didn't cause it. The idea that God's foreknowledge causes things to happen is foolish and unscriptural. So we talked about that. Now we want to talk a little bit further about this, and it's another aspect of the sovereignty of God, and that is, why does God allow bad things? There's no doubt that he does. That's clear. But why? Turn back with me to Deuteronomy chapter 30. Deuteronomy chapter 30. Now I think it's important for me to to, uh, identify the book of Deuteronomy Just real briefly, I won't go into a lot of detail and a lot of time over it, but the book of Deuteronomy is Moses' last address to the children of Israel before they cross over and go into the promised land. You remember Moses messed up God's type. They came, uh, Israel was in a place where there was no water, and God told Moses many, many years before, he said, all right, take the rod, the same rod that you stretched out over the Red Sea and divided the waters, take the rod, and he said, strike the rock. He said, when you strike the rock, water will come out and it'll provide for all the people. Well, that's exactly what happened. Then some years later, Moses comes to a place where the children of Israel are murmuring again because they don't have water. They're out in the wilderness. They don't have water. They're not saying, hey, Moses, can you find us another rock? They're complaining, why did you lead us out here to die? So God speaks to Moses and says, Moses, this time talk to the rock. Speak to the rock and water will come out and provide for the people. Moses gets mad at the people because they refuse to believe and he hits the rock the second time. Well, folks, the rock in both instances is a type of Jesus. The first time where the rock was struck by the rod of of Moses is an example of Jesus on the cross. The Bible says Jesus was smitten of God and afflicted on the cross. God put on Jesus the penalty of mankind. God put on Jesus the penalty of spiritual death and sin. But then after that, ever since that point in time, Jesus is not going back to the cross. You access the benefits and the blessings of God through the work of Jesus by speaking. It's an example of faith. Believe in your heart and say with your mouth. But Moses messed up God's example when he struck the rock the second time. So God told Moses, he says, you're not going into the promised land now. God must care a lot about his examples. Seems a pretty harsh penalty, don't you think? 
Well, I don't have all the answers for why, but that's why God said you're not going in. So Moses knows he's not going in. Moses spends the whole of the book of, or most of the book of Deuteronomy, not exactly all of it, but most of it, the 95% of the book of Deuteronomy, is Moses' farewell address to the children of Israel. He tells them about the importance of going into the promised land and obeying what God says to do. He tells them the consequences of disobedience to to uh, the commands of God. If they fail to, to obey the commands of God, he calls those curses. He talks about all the things that God has done for them in the past, all the things God will do for them in the future. He speaks of all these things trying to make one last attempt to get the people to follow God and only follow God. Now, he concludes or comes toward the end. He's not quite finished, but he comes toward the end of uh, Deuteronomy in Deuteronomy chapter 30, and he makes an outstanding statement on behalf of God. Now, he's speaking first person for God. Moses, when it says I, Moses is not talking about himself. He's speaking on behalf of God, and he says, here's what God is telling you. Notice in verse 19, he says, I call heaven and earth to record this day against you, that I, God, have set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore, choose life that both thou and thy seed may live. Now, folks, this, this uh, doctrine, I, I'm, I'm not going to hesitate to call it doctrine because the Bible calls it doctrine. The doctrine of authority, some people say today, is a brand new doctrine. It's never been around in the body of Christ. It's all this stuff that these name it and claim it people have come up with because they're trying to preach that man is God. But, folks, I would submit to you that the doctrine of authority goes back not only to the Old Testament, it goes back to the creation. Because in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 26, God, Jesus, and the Holy Ghost, God speaking for them all, says, let us make man in our own image. Well, who's he talking to? Who's the us? God, Jesus, and the Holy Ghost. Let us make man in our own image. Well, what are we going to do when we make man in our own image, God? And let us, let him, man, have dominion over the works of our hands. So the idea of man having authority goes back to the original creation. Now, there's something else that's important for me, at least. I hope it's interesting to you as well. And that is, the one thing that Satan was trying to steal from man was authority on the earth. He's still trying to steal authority from man on the earth. It's what he's always been after. It's what he tempted Jesus with in uh, in Mark chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4. One of the Gospels. I don't know. It's in there somewhere. It's the fourth chapter or something. The devil appears to Jesus and and tempts him. And one of the temptations is he shows him all the kingdoms of of the world in a moment of time. He says, I'll give all of these things to you because this authority has been delivered unto me. Now, let me ask you a question. When was it delivered to Satan? God sure didn't give it to him. We see God giving it to man. How did Satan get it? He got it by tricking Eve and getting Adam to go along with it. So that Adam abdicated his position of authority. And that's where Satan becomes, according to 2 Corinthians 4.4, Satan became the god of this world. In other words, Satan has authority for the things here in the earth, like hurricanes and earthquakes and all that kind of stuff. Satan is behind those activities, not God. I wish insurance companies would change their policies and call them acts of the devil instead of acts of God. Because they're not acts of my God. They're not acts of the creator of the universe. They're acts of the one that, that, uh, whose purpose is to kill, steal, and destroy. So authority was the one thing that Satan was after. 
And the only way that he could gain that authority is to break the union between God and man. When Adam sinned, spiritual death became the ruler and the dominating force on the earth. And God had to make a way for him to have access. Because now he doesn't have his life and his nature any longer. He's changed. He's fallen from the original condition in which he was created. So Satan's always been after man's authority. He's still after man's authority today. How does he try to steal or strip man from his authority, his rightful place of authority in, uh, as, from becoming? Well, we regain that authority. I'm ahead of myself. We regain our authority by making Jesus the Lord of our lives. But how does he steal that authority from the Christian? By keeping you in the dark about it. By keeping you ignorant of what belongs to you. And the church is doing a marvelous job helping him. So here where Moses is speaking on behalf of God, God is saying, I set before your life and death, blessing and cursing. Can I ask you a question? Did God create death? When God created the earth, there was no death around. What did God give mankind? Did God say before, did he say to Adam and Eve, all right, here you go. There's life in the earth and there's death in the earth. You pick which one you want. No, there was only life in the earth. And God said, here's how you maintain it. Eat of every fruit of the tree in the Garden of Eden except the one, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Don't eat of that tree, for in the day you eat thereof, you shall surely die. So what did God set before man? He set before him a choice. And he said, the consequence of obedience is life and blessing. The consequence of disobedience is curse and death. That's what God is identifying here. God's not the author of death. He's not the originator of death. He gives man a choice. Man still has authority. Even under the old covenant when he was separated from God. Moses said it this way. I call heaven and earth to record against you this day. That I have set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore choose life. If this is a pop quiz, he's giving you the answer. Let's see. Life, death, blessing, cursing. Gee, it's so hard. I'm not sure which way to go. God says, choose life, that both thou and thy seed shall live. Now, if God's the one that delivered authority to man, then why does God get blamed for everything? We know that God permits things. And see, you'll have some people that will back up from the sovereignty position. That they won't go so far as to say, well, uh, God didn't cause it. Maybe God didn't cause this tragedy to happen. But God allowed it. Well, okay, that's really kind of splitting hairs, isn't it? I mean, the way that people use that. The people that say God didn't cause it, but he's allowing it, are really saying, well, I don't want to accuse him, but he's really causing it. But the fact is, God does allow. God allows you to make a choice for, life, for, for death and curses. He allows it. And the King James translation is really, really good about saying that God causes a lot of things. We've looked at some of those verses in, in uh, previous weeks. I form the light and create evil. Well, is God the creator of evil? No, that word create can also mean to cut down as a tree. Well, that's exactly how God created the earth. He formed the light and it cut down the darkness. So there are many examples that we can find in the scripture where the translation is misleading to us. Dr. Robert Young, in his uh, 
Dr. Robert Young is, was a, one of the foremost Greek and Hebrew scholars of the um, uh, 19th century, I think it was. And um, uh, as a result, he wrote some, some tremendous things about the language, particularly the Hebrew language, that, uh, that's really hard to get a hold of nowadays. He had a book that's now out of print. I've been looking at it for years, looking for it for years. It's called Hints to Bible Interpretation. The only thing that's left of, of, of the Hints to Bible Interpretation is a little two-page summary that's called Hints and Helps to Bible Interpretation that's a part of Young's Analytical Concordance. And there's one statement in here that's made. Uh, it's uh, point number 70B. It says, active verbs frequently express the permission of it. And it gives several examples. The first example he uses is over in Exodus chapter 4 and verse 21 where the King James translates it, and I will harden Pharaoh's heart. Literally is, and I will allow Pharaoh's heart to be hardened. But in this book that's out of print, he goes further and uses several examples like Exodus chapter 15 verse 26 where it says, uh, let me, I think I've got it written down here. God said, if thou wilt diligently hearken to the voice of the Lord thy God and will do that which is right in his sight, and will give ear to his commandments and keep all of his statutes, I will put none of the diseases upon thee which I have brought upon the Egyptians, for I am the Lord that healeth thee. Well, that sounds like God's making some people sick and making some people well. But Dr. Young brings out that that verb that's translated in the causative sense or tense in the English is really in the permissive sense. He's saying, I will allow none of the diseases upon you that I have allowed upon the Egyptians. But we're still back to God allowing things. Why does God allow them? Why does God allow things to happen? You know, uh, I, like I said, I've been studying and, and, and searching and researching for years. I've got uh, about six or seven rare book dealers throughout the country that are looking for hints to Bible interpretation for me from Dr. Robert Young. And, and a lot of times people think that they found it because they found this two-page thing in, in the beginning of his concordance. By the way, I've got about five of these that people have sent me from all over the country. I don't need any more of these. I know this is here. It's a different book. But I was doing some research online for some of these things, and I came across something. Apparently, there was a guy from another denomination that was asking one of his denominational scholars about this. And the, um, uh, the, the way that it was stated, let me quote some of this rather than than trying to say it from memory, it was, uh, it was written this way. Robert Young says that it should be, I will allow, this is uh, Exodus fifteen twenty six, that I will allow or permit these diseases to come upon you and which I allowed upon the Egyptians. Young says that there is a verb for which, from which is permissive but always translated causative in the English Bible. Now here's the response that was written by the Hebrew scholar. In Exodus 15, 26, I will put is in the call imperfect. I believe it is a jussive. I don't know if I'm saying these words right. I believe it is in the jussive use of the verb. The jussive usually connotes the ideas of potential or permissive action. In Exodus 15, 26, it does not have a came's hay added to the end. Therefore, it must be jussive. I think Dr. Young is right. Now, that was written by a Hebrew scholar on staff at the baptistboard.com archives in August 29th, on August 29th of 2003. Folks, that's pretty good for Baptists because that does away with the sovereignty of God idea. Do you understand what he's saying? He's saying where the, English, the King James English translations translates God causing things to happen, it's God saying, I will allow these things to happen. Well, we're back to the original question. Why does God allow it? Very simply. Because he allows you to make a choice. He sets before us life and death, 
blessing and cursing. We're the ones that make the choice. In other words, man, whether saved or unsaved, has authority for what he will have and receive in his own life. Man is the one that has authority. Man is the one that decides. Now turn with me over to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Paul is writing to the church. He's talking about going through difficulty and not following the example of the the Jews in the Old Testament when they rebelled against God. And he makes an outstanding statement in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 13. He says, there has no temptation. Now, the word temptation means test, trial, or adversity. It's the same word that's used over in uh, James chapter 1. My brethren, count it all joy when you'd fall into diverse temptations, test, trials, and adversity. Same word, same uh, root word, exactly the same translation. So he's saying there has no temptation, there's no test, there's no trouble, there's no trial that has taken you, but such as is common unto man. Now, here's why that's important. Common unto man means the devil doesn't have anything new. Now, the reason that's important is because if Jesus had gone to the cross, but, but since that time the devil's come up with something new, then there would always be the opportunity to question, did Jesus pay the price for this new thing too? The fact that he says there's nothing common to man means that Jesus took care of everything the devil ever could do, ever will do, ever could conceive of doing. Now, let's go back to the verse. There's no temptation taken you, but such as is common unto man. But God is faithful who will not suffer you to be tempted. The word suffer means to allow or permit. Who will not suffer, allow or permit you to be tempted above that which you are able. Now, if you just stop right there, it sounds like God's pulling the strings on your temptations. But remember um, James chapter 1 and verse 13. James says, let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. Now, that word tempted is the same word translated temptation here. He says, let no man say when he's going through a test, trial, or adversity that God did it to him. Why? Because God can neither be tempted with evil, so God considers those things to be evil. God can neither be tempted of evil, neither tempts he any man. So we know from James 1.13 that that the interpretation of 1 Corinthians 3 10, 13, cannot be that God's the one causing the temptation, but only letting the devil get far enough to where he doesn't take you over. The illustration that I would use here is that God's got the devil like a bulldog on a chain, and he lets, you get, lets him get close enough to chew off your, your, your ankle, but stops him before he causes you to bleed to death. Gee, thanks, God. But that's the way so much of the sovereignty of God side of the church thinks that things are working. God's somehow working hand in hand with the devil. Folks, the Bible says God is, the devil is God's enemy. He's not working with the devil. Well, then what does this mean? God will not allow you. He will not permit you to be tempted above that which you are able. But, now he's going to tell you about your ability. But will with the temptation, test, trial, and affliction also make a way to escape that you may be able to bear, endure it. Now, the idea that you're going to get from this verse of Scripture depends on one of two things. If you've got the idea that God is sovereign, He's causing everything, then you're going to read this verse of Scripture and come away thinking, well, God causes bad stuff to happen, and, and somehow there's some greater purpose in it, but He'll stop it from taking your life. 
He'll let you go right up to the edge, but he won't let it take you over. And then somehow or another, you're supposed to just suffer through this and, and, and realize that he's got a pl- greater plan, greater purpose. Or if you look on the other side, if you come from the perspective that man has authority, you realize that what the Bible is saying is there's no temptation that, you can, that will come against you that's greater than the power of the name of Jesus already given to you. If you'll notice verse, 10, verse 13 of 1 Corinthians chapter 10 is all about the escape. It's not about the temptation. It's about the escape. Well, what is the escape? The escape is the use of the name of Jesus to overcome whatever comes at you. How do we do that? According to James, count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations, knowing that the trying of your faith will work with patience and you will be restored to victory. Now, folks, nobody likes tough places. Nobody likes test trials and afflictions. I grew up in the South. I grew up in Alabama. I grew up reading a little storybook called Song of the South. Any of you ever heard of that? Well, if, if, you're, if you're young, you don't know anything about that because it's considered racist nowadays and you can't even find any record of it online anymore. It's amazing to me how people find racism in so many things anyway. It was a story. And in this story, the rabbit, Br'er Rabbit, was always being chased by Br'er Fox. He always had some kind of plan, always had some kind of scheme to get him. And Br'er Rabbit would always say, oh, whatever you're going to do to me, please don't throw me in the briar patch. Well, folks, temptations are like the briar patch. Nobody really wants to go in there. The problem was that the fox kept throwing him into the briar patch, never realizing that the briar patch was was Br'er Rabbit's happy place. That's what James 1 is about. Make trouble your happy place. You make trouble, you learn to make trouble your happy place. Count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations. You'll find that that place comes out, turns out to be a place of victory. Why is it a place of victory? Because when the devil thinks he's got you, you win. And that's what the stories of Br'er Rabbit and Br'er Fox were about over and over and over and over again. That's what the Bible says to do. It's talking about the means of escape. It's saying you've got the choice. What is your choice? You can use the name of Jesus and experience life and blessings, or you can fail to use the name of Jesus, just sit back and say, oh, these terrible things are happening to me. I don't know why God is doing this to me, and continue to experience the hardship. The question is, are you going to be a doer of the word? How many of you ever heard of the hymn, It Is Well With My Soul? You know the history of that story or the history of that song? Some of you may. Let me explain it to you for the rest of you. There's a guy by the name of Horatio Safford. He was a very wealthy man in Chicago in, 18, in the, the late 1800s, 1870 or so. He was a very wealthy man. But in 1871, he was, he was wealthy because he had real estate holdings. And uh, he owned uh, lots of the property, most of the property along the shoreline of uh, the, uh, what is it, Lake Michigan there that's in Chicago, whatever it is, whatever the lake is. Uh, well, the, the great fire of, uh, the great Chicago fire of 1871 wiped him out, all but wiped him out. He still had a few holdings, but it wiped out uh, 90% of his wealth. Uh, the year before that, the year before he had five children, I think it was, and the year before the great Chicago fire, his son had died of scarlet fever. So here's just two things right back to back that were devastating to his family. So he told his wife and his four daughters, four remaining daughters, what we need is we need to get away. So let's take a a transatlantic cruise to London, and we'll spend some time there. Well, just before they got on board ship, 
there was some kind of business thing that came up where he couldn't go. So his wife and his four daughters went on ahead. He said, I'll catch up with you and, and, and meet you there as soon as I can. During the crossing, the boat that the wife and the four daughters were on collided with another ship and, and sank in like 12 minutes. And so the four daughters drowned. The, the youngest was a little baby, three-month-old baby, something like that. I don't know, real, real small. But the wife survived. Well, news came back to, to Mr. Safford, and you can imagine how devastating that would be. Now, here's, here's three terrible, terrible things that happened just back-to-back, almost back-to-back. So he hears the news, gets on the next steamship to, to take him to London. She, when she was rescued, they took her. They were closer to, uh, to England, so they just went on there. So he's now going to cross the sea to get to where she is and console her and, you know, do whatever he can. They get to the place on the same route where his daughters, the, the ship that his wife and daughters were on and had drowned, went down, and the captain made an announcement. And he announced to the people on board the ship that this is the place where the others drowned and so they stopped they said a prayer they did whatever to you know in remembrance of them he went down to his cabin and wrote the song it is well with my soul now if you know anything about the lyrics it says when there's peace like a river or when the sea sea billows roar roar roll i don't know whatever whatever it is he started talking about and, and, and sang the song developed the song it is well with my soul well everybody knowing the history of the song of that day knowing what experiences and, and, and tragedies and, and tragic things had happened, they were just blown away by this man's faith. They were blown away by his willingness to serve God and to love God in spite of all the things that happened and not turn his back on the Lord and, and so forth. And so that was, that was pretty much the end of the story. That was the, the attitude that everybody had. The part of the story, that much you may have heard of and you can read online, the part of the story you haven't heard is that some years later, he and his wife went to what is now Israel to start a colony. Now, this colony that they started, they were interviewed. You've got to realize this was very much unheard of in that day. I mean, there was some uh, travel that was being done in, in uh, what, was, what was then known as Palestine, still is in certain parts. But, um, uh, but for the most part, to go over there to, to an inhospitable land and, and uh, um, uh, a, a violent place like it was then, even more so than it is today, it was a real dangerous undertaking. So he was interviewed for why he was doing this. And here's what he said. He said in this interview, he said, my wife and I have always attempted to live our lives as an example of Jesus and his sufferings. He was the man of sorrows that suffered many terrible things as our example. Our desire, hope, is that we would endure the same sufferings as he did. Now, folks, Jesus did suffer, but he suffered for you. Jesus suffered on the cross as your substitute, not as your example. He suffered persecutions as your example. But what he did on the cross, he doesn't expect you to follow him to the cross. I would submit to you that if Mr. Safford could come back from heaven today and write another song, it would not be it was, well, it was well with my soul. It would be more along the lines of the devil ain't going to steal from me no more. Yeah. Now, folks, that brings up another important point, and that is what if somebody doesn't know? Hosea 4, 6 says my people perish for a lack of knowledge. If you don't know what belongs to you, if you don't know your authority, you will perish at the hand of the devil, wondering all the time why did God let this happen? 
Also, in Proverbs, it says, without a vision, my people perish. If you don't have a vision, an understanding of the authority that belongs to you as a believer, as a child of God, if you don't know what the authority is that we have in the name of Jesus, then there's no way you can walk in that authority. Turn with me over to Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16. Jesus asked his disciples one of the most important questions that have ever been posed to any human being. He said, who do men say that I am? And the disciples answer. They say, well, some say you're John the Baptist, raised from the dead. Some say you're Elijah or or, um, uh, Jeremiah or one of the other prophets. And then Jesus asked them the question in verse 15. He said, but who do you say I am? In other words, you're going to get all kinds of opinions on Jesus. The real important point is, who do you say he is? And Jesus, or I'm sorry, verse 16, Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed it unto you, but my Father which is in heaven. And I say unto you that thou art Peter. Now the word Peter here means shifting sand, literally. It means such a small rock that it's like sand. So he said, And I say unto you, Peter, Thou art Peter, and upon this rock, not Peter being the rock, you don't build your house on sand. But the rock that he's talking about is the immovable rock that is the knowledge that Jesus is the Son of God. He's literally saying, Peter, you may be back and forth on stuff, but I'm going to build my church on a knowledge that never changes. And that knowledge is that I am the Son of God, I am the Christ, just like God has inspired you to speak. And upon this rock, the knowledge that Jesus is the Son of God, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now notice the next verse. Notice verse 19. In connection with building the church so that the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. One translation says the gates of hell shall not be able to hold out against it. So many times people have the idea that the devil's chasing us and we're just on defense trying to hold him off. That's not the picture Jesus paints here. He paints the picture of the church moving forward and the gates of hell trying to withstand it and can't. Do you understand that? Gates are not offensive weapons. He says the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. It means the gates can't hold out. We're supposed to be the ones moving forward, not the devil. Now in connection with that, he says in verse 19, And I will give unto you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Now, what are those keys about? Well, we know that the keys of the kingdom of heaven have to include the word of God in the name of Jesus because we grow and develop spiritually by the word and only by the word. We use the name of Jesus in prayer and anything else that we have, uh, need access to God for, right? So we know that at least the, na- the, the two uh, keys that we know of have to be the word in the name of Jesus. So he says, and I will give unto you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And based on the word and based on the use of his name, whatsoever you shall bind. The word bind means to prohibit or forbid. Whatever you prohibit, whatever you forbid on earth shall be bound in heaven. Notice it's your move, not heaven's. And whatsoever you shall loose. The word loose means to allow. Whatever you allow on earth shall be allowed in heaven. What is God saying? What is Jesus, the Son of God, saying in talking about the building of his church that the gates of hell shall not prevail against? Very simply, he's saying, you make the choice. 
He's saying, I set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. You choose. Whatever you refuse to allow here on the earth, whatever you use your authority by the word of God in the name of Jesus, whatever you use your authority to forbid here on the earth, heaven will back you up. Whatever you choose on the earth through the word in the name of Jesus to allow here on the earth, heaven will back you up on that too. What's he saying? He's saying man has authority. Why does God allow bad things? Because we do. But remember, God's whole thing in the middle of test, in the middle of trial, in the middle of affliction, God's whole thing is he makes a way for escape. What is that way of escape? The word of God and the name of Jesus. The keys of the kingdom of heaven. And nothing is stronger than the word of God and the name of Jesus. And that's why you're able to always come out on top. That's why we're able to count it all joy. Knowing that there's nothing greater than the word of God and the name of Jesus. It'll put you over every time. You're the one that has the choice. I was trying to, use, trying to figure, up a, a figure out a, a, or come up with a, an illustration to, to, um, to, to use this. And the Lord reminded me of the first time that we went to Israel. In uh, 2002, about six months after the attacks on uh, the World Trade Center and Pentagon and, and so forth of 9-11, about six months later, we took a group from the uh, church, had it planned before, before then and, and just continued on with the, with the trip. Uh, there were 10 of us that went to uh, Israel. First time I'd ever been. And uh, we had the country all to ourselves, literally. I mean, nobody was going to Israel right then. And they thought we were the Rambo group. I mean, we got there, the, the shop owners, the, the tour people. I mean, they thought, oh, what brave people you are to come over. And it just, it just, it was a great trip, wonderful trip. There was only one other tourist group in the whole country uh, of Israel that was there when we were there. And um, uh, they happened, the, their, our itineraries caused us to be in the same place as them at the garden tomb on the last day. And it was so frustrating because we'd had the whole country to ourselves, been able to walk into everything that, that, that was there. And now here's this big group of 40 or 45 people, whatever it was, and they're taking over our stuff. We had to really watch our attitudes. I mean, it was, we had to walk in love. I mean, here's where Jesus was buried, and we're, we're mad at the people for taking over our place, you know. But anyway, one of the things that we did on this trip, it was a wonderful trip, just terrific. One of the things that we did on this trip that we've never done since we've been back is that we went to a kibbutz on the, um, uh, the um, uh, eastern side of the Sea of Galilee, which is known as the Golan Heights. Any of you ever heard of the Golan Heights? Well, the Golan Heights used to be a part of Syria. Now, I grew up hearing about the Golan Heights, and, and there, it, Israel had, had taken them back in the Six-Day War of 1967, and then Syria had tried to retake them in 1973. So that was when I was a senior in high school. So I remember hearing things about the Golan Heights. Somehow or another, I didn't know about the, uh, the geography of the land. I figured the Golan Heights were somewhere near Israel. I had no idea it was on the east bank of the Sea of Galilee. And it's the only place in Israel where there's a real hill, hill other than Mount Hermon. And so the, the, it's kind of a sloping hill. It's, it's where the story of Jesus casting out the devil from the madman of Gadara took place. There's a, there's a, a, a brow of a hill there that they were going to throw Jesus uh, or that the, the swine went down from and, and that kind of stuff. And, and um, so anyway, when we got there, it was, it was Israel's nothing like I'd pictured it to be. And, and so it, a lot of it was a big surprise and, and that type of stuff. Anyway, we get there and had to get there first thing in the morning. Got there just about daybreak because we were going to have breakfast up on the, the kibbutz at the, the top of the hill. And, and, uh, and so this, uh, 
uh, formerly the Golan Heights was this hill, and up on top was this settlement that uh, would overlook the Sea of Galilee and, and uh, most all of the rest of Israel. And so we're met there in the morning at the foot of the hill by uh, three jeeps. And as we were standing there, they told us the history of this place. And uh, they, they told us about one guy that was, uh, um, uh, had infiltrated the Syrian army. And he turned out to be one of the great heroes of uh, the Israeli army because uh, of his double, his spy action and, and that type of stuff. The whole hillside was uh, uh, at one time, at that time at least, was uh, barren of trees. And they had um, uh, artillery embankments and things like that in there, but they had them very well camouflaged in disguise so Israel couldn't, couldn't find out where they were. Well, this guy that was an Israeli agent that was in the infiltrated the Syrian army, he came up with the idea and presented it to his superior, superior officers. Hey, there's no, there's no shade from, uh, from the, the real hot sun for the, the soldiers. So what we need to do is we need to plant trees for shade. So they planted trees. The, the, the guys thought that's a great idea. So they planted trees, provided for shade. Well, he just sends back word, aim for the trees. And so they wound up, you know, doing a lot of damage. And, and, uh, and the, the Syrians, they couldn't figure out, how do these guys know where we are? They couldn't figure it out. Well, anyway, when we got there in the, the morning, first thing, daybreak, we got there, and as the sun starts to come up, it's just a beautiful, beautiful hillside. And they warned us very specifically, very strictly. They said, now, don't, don't get off the path. Don't do, just stay right here. Because this thing, when, it was, uh, when Syria uh, occupied this territory, they planted landmines all up through this hillside. And he said, some have been cleared out, but, but there's still many others there. And every now and, there, every now and then there'll be a goat that'll go out and it'll be an explosion and goat parts go everywhere and that kind of stuff. So, you know, stay on the path. You know, stay right here. Don't go anywhere. Well, then, then they showed us what we were going to go up the hill on. And, and the path was just the width of the, the Jeep tires that would go up this switchback little thing. And so they had three Jeeps. Now, these, these Jeeps were um, uh, four-seaters or would take four uh, plus the driver. So there was a driver's seat, there was a passenger seat, front seat, and then there was a little bench on the back that would hold three. Well, when they said, they told us the story about the landmines and stuff, and so here's eight of us jumping in, I noticed that everybody went for the center of the back seat. <laughs> Nobody wanted to be on the edge. And, uh, and everybody's leaning toward the inside, you know, as we start going up this thing. Well, I'm the pastor, and, and I'm the, the person of honor in the group, and so they wanted to put me up there on shotgun. So <laughs> thanks a lot, you know. And so we start going up this thing, and you're hanging off the edge, and it would have been, uh, there's no doors on the Jeep. I mean, it's just these old-timey Jeeps, and, and it, very easy to step out, fall out, whatever. And, uh, and, and the, the steepness of the hill, if you fell out, you're not just going to fall out and put a foot on the ground. You're going to roll, which increases your chances of hitting the landmine. You, you, get my, you know where I'm coming from on this, right? Okay. And I thought about that related to 1 Corinthians 10, 13. God makes a way of escape. What's your way of escape? Stay in the Jeep. And folks, that's exactly what Moses told the children of Israel about the word. He said, stay with the word. Don't get off track. Now, what happens is so many Christians, either through ignorance of the Bible, ignorance of what belongs to them in their authority, ignorance of the power of the name of Jesus, whatever it is, ignorance is not an excuse, folks. My people perish for a lack of knowledge. That means people perish because of ignorance. They wind up getting out of the Jeep whether they fall out or whether they jump out, and then hit a landmine and say, God, why did you let this happen to me? 
You're the one that got out of the Jeep. That's what choose life means, folks. That's exactly what choose life means. It means you have the choice to stay on the path. There's danger out there. Now, folks, that hillside was beautiful. Oh, I was looking at some places. Beautiful flowers wouldn't have been a wonderful thing to go out there and pick some flowers. Good luck on that. And that's exactly what the devil does to us today. He throws something out there that looks so good. Oh, you can make it. Other people may not have, but you can make it. You're so much smarter than they were when they got blown up. You're quick. You're light on your feet. You can make it. Folks, that's the way the devil operates. He's trying to get you out there in the minefield. But God has made a way of escape. The way of escape is his word and his name. All you got to do is stick with the word. And then it does away with all that, why did God let this stuff happen to me? Folks, God's not letting anything happen to you. Now, you're living in a world where the devil is the God of. Satan is the God of this world. You're going to be attacked. You're going to be, uh, there are going to be afflictions. Many of the tribulations are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers them out of them all. How does the Lord deliver them out of them all? Through the word and the name. Get back on track. If you've gotten off track, get back on track. If you're on track and the devil's just bringing his trouble, count it all joy. Make the briar patch your happy place. It couldn't be any simpler, folks. Why then does so much of the church world disagree and argue about these things? Because if the devil can keep you blinded to your authority, he can keep you from operating in the power of God. I call heaven and earth to record against you this day that I've set before you life and death. They're both out there. It's your choice. Blessing and cursing. They're both out there. It's your choice. Now God gives you a hint. Therefore, choose life. That both you and your children shall live. Why does God allow bad things? Because we do. Now, don't get me wrong. That doesn't mean everything that's ever happened to you is because you messed up or made a wrong choice or a wrong move in some way or another. Sometimes it's just because the devil is an equal opportunity destroyer. But no matter what, the word in the name of Jesus will see you through. Now, folks, that's one of the reasons why I hate what's going on in our country right now. I despise it. Now, I know those are harsh words, but the Bible says God hates sin. So if God hates stuff like that, then it's okay for us to, too. But I hate what's going on in our country because what's going on in our country, no matter what name you put on it, whether it's universal health care, whether it's cap and trade, whether it's the, the 99%, whatever, whatever name you want to put on it, however you want to say it's helping the poor and looking out for the little guy, whatever name you want to put on it, it's about taking authority away from the individual. It's about coming under government control instead of you having individual control. And I hate it. And I especially hate the fact that so much of the church is blind to what's going on. Because everything, remember what the devil's number one original intent, and that was to steal authority from man. How did he do it? He told Eve, here's what you can have. Here's what I'm going to give you. If you'll just disobey God, here's what you'll have. It's the same thing that happens today. It's the same thing that's happening today. Now, folks, politics is not the answer. And please don't, get, please don't misunderstand me. If we elected Jesus as president, it's not going to save the country. 
Because God's not out to save countries, He's out to save people. And people could have Jesus as their president and still not believe Him. The Pharisees didn't believe Jesus and had Him doing miracles in front of them day after day after day. So the answer is not in politics. I understand the answer is not in politics. But you've got one political party whose whole agenda is to control. And the church falls in. The church goes for that. And it's all about authority. It's all about the more authority you have as an individual, the less authority the government has. The more authority the government has, the less you have as an individual. And folks, that's what it's all about. It's about controlling you. It's about controlling your money. It's about controlling your choice. The abortion issue, they call it the right of women to choose. You know what it's about? It's about the right of the American people to not be able to say what's good or bad, right or wrong. It's about the loss of authority for mankind. That's why I hate what's going on in our country. I'm not politi- political by nature. I don't, I, the Republicans aren't the answer. But it's what's happening. And it's the way the devil always operates. It's the way he always operates. He wants to rob you of authority. He wants to tell you you can't do it. And so many people have done the same thing. They're just throwing themselves over and saying, well, we'll just let God take care of it. You can't give away your authority in him. You, you let God take care of it. In that sense, thinking that God is sovereign, you're opening your, yourself up to the devil for anything and everything that he has. You're doing the same thing that Brother Safford did and opened his family up to disaster. Thank God they went to heaven. Thank God he maintained his faith. A lot of people wouldn't have. But he could have avoided so much of it by recognizing who he is in Christ. Just like we can. We see the same things happening today. Behold, I give unto you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy. Folks, victory is God's plan for you. Not going from trouble to trouble to trouble, but going from victory to victory to victory. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for revealing yourself, revealing your character and revealing your nature to us. Thank you, Father, that we have authority in the word of God and in the name of Jesus. That authority is greater than anything the enemy can bring. It's greater than sickness. It's greater than lack. It's greater than depression. It's greater than any trouble that has ever been brought upon mankind. And there's nothing new. And Jesus paid the price for us to walk in that victory. In every, every, every aspect. Oh, Father, we worship you. We magnify your holy name. It's so good to know that there's nothing that's greater than the word. There's nothing that the enemy can do that can overcome the truth of your word. And as we stand upon that word, Father, we have the assurance that victory is ours. We know, Father, that there's no name in heaven, earth, or hell that's greater than the name of Jesus. And that name's been given unto us. You told us so clearly, Father, that whatever we forbid or refuse to allow here on the earth, you back us up. You also said, Father, whatever we allow, you'll back us up on that too. We choose life. We choose life and blessings. Oh, Father, thank you for all that you've done for us. Forgive us for the times that we've unjustly accused you of working for our ill. Forgive us, Father, for the times where we haven't known, through our own ignorance, we haven't known that you made a way of escape. We choose life, Father. We choose healing. We choose health. We choose victory. We choose abundance. 
We know, Father, we're going to endure persecution in this life. We recognize that. But even persecution can't hold us back. We'll count that joy. And watch you bring us to the top. Watch you restore our victory. In the precious and holy name of Jesus. Father, open people's eyes to the truth. Show them that it's their choice. Not yours. You already made your choice by sending your son. No, what a wonderful choice that was for us. And this is the victory that overcomes the world, even our faith. We believe you, Father. We believe your word. We thank you so much for your goodness. In Jesus' precious name. Everybody that agrees with that, say amen. 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 Praise the Lord. Let's all stand together. Hallelujah. Don't forget the newcomer's coffee. It will take place in just a few moments as soon as the service is over. It's in the fellowship hall. We invite you, those of you that are with us for the first time to join us. And those of you that have recently begun to attend, we'd love to see you there too as well. This evening at 5 o'clock is prayer school in the fellowship hall. 6 o'clock here in the auditorium is healing school. And our Wednesday night service is at 7. If you can come and be with us for any and all of those services, we'd love to have you. God bless you. You're dismissed.